This episode is brought to you by Exceder. Exceder provides life science startups with equipment leases on founder-friendly terms to accelerate R&D and commercialization. Lease the equipment you need with Exceder. Extend your runway, hit your milestones. As a podcast listener, you can redeem exclusive discounts with a growing list of biotech vendors and get $500 off your first equipment lease by using promo code TBSP on exceder.com slash rewards. Welcome to the Biotech Startups Podcast by Exceder. Join us as we speak with first-time founders, serial entrepreneurs, and experienced investors about the challenges and triumphs of running a biotech startup, from pre-seed to IPO, with your host, John Chi. In our last episode, we spoke with Jeff Kim about his time in graduate school, his move to the West Coast, and his experience founding Radiant Genomics. If you missed it, be sure to go back and give part two a listen. In part three, we talk about the founding team at Slingshot Biosciences, what it's like raising venture capital during COVID-19, and Jeff's experience working with distributors as part of their global expansion. So now Radiant, basically now part of Zymergen slash Ginkgo, and now you're into the Slingshot era. And Slingshot was actually simultaneously with the Radiant. So basically, Radiant went one way and then Slingshot just like continued on. Yep. And was this founding team, like, was this a completely different squad than the Radiant folks? Or how did it come to be? So the co-founder of Radiant was also co-founder of Slingshot. And then we had two other co-founders of Slingshot early days. I think it was very appealing for us because it was supposed to be this rapid M&A. And we had the acquisition, a soft acquisition offer even before we founded the company. And then immediately after sending manufacturing sort of validation lots, we had a hard acquisition offer. So I think for most of the founders, the thought was it was a quick win. We'll sell the business and move on. So I would say the other founders did not have full-time roles in the business. It was kind of a part-time role and it was supposed to be a quick exit. Everyone would be happy. What ended up happening is it turned out to just be this long slog. So in that journey, the other three founders were in other active roles in other businesses. So they actually exited the company. Sorry, it was more than three founders. It was four, four other co-founders. And one of them is still with us today, Antoine. So he did also another full-time stint in Gilead, but decided to come back and join the business full-time when we capitalized and started raising. And an absolutely critical strategic and operational partner to me. We wouldn't be here without him. He's a fantastic manager. He's got really good EQ. So on the business development side, really trustworthy partner for our customers and it is important for our biggest clients. So feel lucky to have him on this journey. Absolutely. I think about my co-founder in that same regard, like all the time. Jeff Totten is, I would say, we're opposite sides of the same coin, but that's like what I found to be perfect. And we have like healthy disagreements all the time, but it all comes from a good place. And that aspect has been completely integral. So I empathize with that feeling with your co-founder. And so the early days for Slingshot, I guess to just like level set for the listeners here, could you talk a little about like, what was the state of the market? And how did you think about Slingshot basically bucking the status quo and just kind of level set so people know like what you were looking at as an opportunity set? Yeah, yeah. The original opportunity set was very, very narrow. We knew this massive instrument manufacturer had this big problem that they couldn't solve. And it was almost a tongue in cheek joke when they through the problem out there, they're, they're like, oh, if you can make a synthetic cell, you would solve like this huge problem of ours. And it was over beers and dinner that we were talking to some business partners there. 
And that's when the light bulb went off for me. I realized, hey, I can actually solve this problem. And then several other people at the dinner worked in other industries and they were complaining about something else very related. You know, some of them were in biopharma having to pause clinical trials because they couldn't get reference material. Others were in cell line manufacturing for various things and they're having issues with QC and control. And I realized, hey, if we make a synthetic cell, we can solve all three of these problems very quickly and can go after it. But the very first problem was for this instrument manufacturer. And that's when I immediately quit Amaris. And within a week, I purchased the capital equipment that we need. And week two, it had already arrived, ready made exactly what we needed to make. So I knew and sent down the validation lots to their team and they loved it. So I think from the get-go, I knew what needed to happen. And I was like, oh, this is a nice, profitable one-man operation in the basement. Let's just keep this rolling. But then after that soft slash like semi-firm uh, M&A bid, and when I started to do the VOC, I realized that the, the potential was just enormous to go beyond the instrument manufacturers. Like the cell line replacement is really the big one. And it became even more important as cell and gene therapy and cell therapies became popular. The need for cell line-based controls in those processes is absolutely critical. And there's no solution for it right now. So people are literally hiring armies of people to make cell lines for themselves and blending them together and dealing with batch valuation and bridging studies. And it's just a huge amount of overhead that ultimately impacts the cost of the drug and slows down the speed at which you can manufacture the drug. So it's uh, impacting patients. And that's when I realized we need to build the business to go in that direction and add on this cell and gene therapy component to our business because that's where our real impact will be. I love how a dinner can turn into something like this. And kind of like a half joke can turn into something massive. And so now you're like, okay, this is a very large market or opportunity set. And maybe doing this bootstrap out of the garage, one person is not going to take us to the promised land. And so now you're basically going the venture route. What was that experience like? It sounds like it was like your first time raising venture capital. What was that experience like? And any lesson that you take with you to this day about doing the fundraising you know, kind of roadshow? So I've been peripherally involved in raising capital in other businesses, but for a business that I started, you're right, this is the first time we have needed to raise capital. That was odd, I would say. It was peak COVID. That's the one thing that was odd. So not being able to meet your business partner on the other side of the table was very strange, especially if you didn't know them already. That was strange. And then the whole diligence process was very arm's length. Usually it's a pretty intimate process where they come visit, meet the team, meet you, see how you present yourself, check the facilities out. It was all done in FaceTime. So I'm holding up my phone, showing the labs and like doing all this stuff. It was very surreal. Net-net, it was efficient though, because we didn't have to fly around and take that turn cycle. I would say that it was extremely helpful to have built a network and venture to get this started. I was able to have conversations that would have been very difficult if I were just reaching out and spamming investors. So that time in venture capital was pretty important. So getting kind of a seed network of trusted people there was good. And then I think it also helped that when I talked to investors, it was very helpful for them to see that I had been on that side of the table. I know what they're looking for in a lot of ways, what terms are market and what are a little bit overreach so we can quickly avoid that stuff. And then ultimately what they're trying to do from a personal career perspective, like depending on where they are within their fund at a level or what, how old the fund is or what the fundraising environment is. Like knowing all those dynamics is really important to understand your customer and they're ultimately your customer. So that was good. But the overall process was pretty atypical because it was all virtual, all from my daughter's bedroom, largely on my laptop. So it's, it, was a, it was a trip. 
Yeah, that was a thing. It's like now we're on our way out of it or have been out of it. What a strange time. And so during that, so you raise your venture capital and you know, you've got to start putting the capital to work. I'm going to assume there's a lot of more hiring that was taking place. Can you talk a little bit about the company culture at Slingshot? What is the North Star for you guys? And what is your approach to hiring great talent and retaining great talent? So I think our North Star has always been that we want to improve access to therapeutics. If you think about the most impactful way to do that, it's to find a picks and shuffles tool that touches every part of the therapeutic development life cycle. And that's aligns or controls, in our opinion. And we believe that, especially with new modalities like cell therapy, coming up with new categories of precision controls that will help speed up manufacturing, improve manufacturing quality, improve manufacturing accuracy, help stratify patients better. Even though it's a simple product, those control products can have a huge impact on the number of available manufacturing slots or the number of patients you can treat, the cost of the therapy, the time it takes to manufacture the therapy, the likelihood of you know, adverse outcomes, all of that can be impacted with better controls. So that's always been our North Star is making healthcare more accessible. And on the rare disease size, it's even more acute. You know, a lot of rare diseases, you cannot get any reference material consistently. So you can't run a clinical trial. So you have to call up a primary cell bank and just call them. And if you have a cohort of patient with XYZ disease and they'll say no, then you pause your trial. So it's a very fragmented and disruptive process that's ultimately limited by supply chain of these reference cells. We can unlock that entirely and we can print any rare disease cell mimic we want. And one of the satisfying things is that we are engaged in five or six pharma companies helping them do that, in addition to some large regulating bodies, which we'll announce in the Q4 sometime. So that has always been our North Star driving mission. I think from a company culture perspective, we're very hands-on. and I think that rolls down from my style. If there's something that we can do faster without getting outsourced contractors or an FTE in, I'll just do it a lot of times. I'm still kind of the de facto plumbing and IT guy. Same. So it was like, my XYZ app isn't working. Let me just get in there. <laughs> you know? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. It's just faster for us to do it, yeah. right? So I think that you know I've toned down a lot of that since we've scaled past a certain point. I get feedback that it's a little intimidating because people feel the pressure to be able to do a lot of the stuff themselves, but that's not my expectation. So the culture is pretty roll up to sleeps, I would say, as a result of that. At the same time, I'd like to give people a lot of autonomy in the business. So ideally, you build a team that is all perfectly aligned on the mission, like super self-motivating going. But what happens in any business when you reach a certain size, it starts to become more of an investment to make sure that mission and that vision is maintained and communicated. But that's really where we're investing in right now. We're going through a lot of growth, a lot of changes, and the growth is always painful. I've been in this is probably my seventh startup with thinking about the studios and the other ones. Every single time it's painful when you go this fast, but I will say the core team is aligned on the mission and we've got a great set of operators and leaders in the business now that are going to take it in great directions. The other thing I think that's important, going back to my venture experience, you always have to think about what is best for the business, even for myself, right? If we reach a stage where I think there's an operator profile that would grow the business better and faster, it's absolutely my job to identify that person and to bring him or her in. I think being kind of passionately like wedded to your idea and, and holding on to it to the death is not good. It's good to have drive and motivation and resilience, but you have to have an objective view on the business as an independent entity and ask constantly whether you're the right person to be running it, right? So I think that self-awareness is really important to instill confidence with investors too, right? Because they don't want some crazy battle in the future about, you know, holding on to control, et cetera. If it's clear to everybody, including the founder, that someone needs to change, then they should make that change. And I appreciate the candidness about that. I totally understand. Like, 
as a founder, the company feels like your child. You put life force into it. It takes an incredible level of like maturity to be like, hey, look, I'm a zero to one person. I'm not a one to end person. And that's okay. But I want to get to the end. <laughs> I want that. So being like, okay, if needed, we'll get someone who's really good at that. It's almost like a can be like a weight off your chest. Because I went exactly what you were describing, these like inflection points and growth spurts. Originally, like, you know, when it was just me on a dining room table, of course I had to do everything. There was no one else to do anything. But eventually, when you get to a certain point, there's not enough waking hours in the day to do all that. And you end up wearing like two hats, maybe more than two hats that are more than full-time jobs. And you're just like, time to take one of them off, share the burden, and just share the work. So that's really, really fascinating. And I love hearing that because it's hard to do. It is a painful thing. Yeah, yeah. It's like the med school thing, right? I know that self-realization, like there's no way that I would enjoy that process of rote memorization of thousands and thousands of pages of medical textbooks. There's probably very little chance I would enjoy running a you know 5,000 person company and managing that entire mess, right? So I uh, would gladly hand off at a certain point. Yeah, yeah, totally. And you know, talking about the growth and the sales motion and the go-to-market, I know you guys are selling in the United States, in Canada, in Mexico, and all over the world. But I know in the US, Canada, and Mexico, you're selling direct, but you also work with distributors. Can you talk about your experience expanding globally? And when did you know it was time? Yeah, yeah. No, I'd love to go into detail there. It was also a very challenging and surreal experience, I would say, because it was peak COVID when we decided to do that. So the original tactic was all inside sales, and it was all catalog product inside sales. We had a limited number of staff that were allowed in, in here like physically, and we you know, weren't able to enter any customers. So it was the right strategy at the time, but it was a very difficult one. So this is a retrospective learning. The only way that would have worked is if we had like massive brand presence already. Because we're ultimately going head to head with the thermos, the BDs, Beck and Culture in the world, the big life science strategics. And they have the brand presence where they can just send out emails and with a new product announcement. And then you get a million people viewing it. And there's a certain percentage that'll buy and you can keep going in. For us, we tried that. It was very difficult to go head to head. We were an unknown company at the time. So I think in retrospect, what we should have done is invested more heavily in marketing early on to get our brand presence out there. It was tough again, because conferences are one of the main venues and we couldn't go, they're all canceled, they're virtual. But I would say we did the right thing at the time to try to grow. And we had a set of SKUs that have a global presence. Europe is definitely the second market or EMEA, and then Apex is a very close third. So we knew we had to sell there, otherwise we're leaving money on the table. So that expansion happened. We built an inside sales team originally during peak COVID. Realized after about a year that Things were starting to thaw in terms of on-site visits, and the team composition we had was not necessarily the right one. And that's a really hard decision to make. Um, still very close friends with our former sales leader, but his experience was squarely in kind of the inside sales, transactional sales world. And he and I both realized, okay, this is not the best fit for the business. And this is where I think he showed a similar level of just incredible maturity. He's a believer in the business. He's a believer in the technology. He's an owner of the business. He's purchased his equity. And he realized that he himself was not the right person to take it to this next phase. So we came up with a transition plan, identified a, a commercial leader and a new strategy and made those changes. But I think that selflessness or that self-awareness is really important in a business. It's very different from academia. Like academia, your project is yours, ride or die type thing. And, and you want like sole authorship, sole ownership. And a business is about a team and it's about the business as an independent entity, if you will. So that's always the best way you should approach it, I think, as a founder. And 
I know you sell direct and work through distributors. So how do you pick your distributors and what makes for a good distributor partnership? Yeah, no, great question. I think when you go to market through distributors, there's definitely negotiation involved with trying to find the best deal to get the products out there. But I think the key thing is you need this kind of dating period, if you will, like a short period where you actually are measuring performance and asking, are they living up to their word? And then doing the simple math calculation doesn't make sense to maintain them with this level of discount, or can I do better going direct with an FTE or two in that region? So this dating period can be painful. Some of the distributors do very poorly and totally miss targets and some do really well, but you just have to be honest and ask, like, are they members of the team that are contributing or are they actually hurting you from that regard? And then from that lens, it's pretty easy to decide whether you want to go direct to with distributors. It's cheaper initially. A distribution agreement is free. Largely, you're just giving a discount on your product typically and some initial maybe freebies. But I think once your brand presence reaches a certain point and you're starting to get direct inquiries past a certain threshold, you have to be very clear about that ROI calculation. The distributors just aren't lifting their weight, then you go direct and you have to have contracts that are short enough where you can make those decisions. Totally. And what would you say are some of the you know, biggest challenges and triumphs that you've learned while running Slingshot? Yeah, there are challenges all the time as startup at this stage. <laughs> but I would say the most important learnings are it's very difficult to balance team composition and goals, right? You all set out with a set of goals and you hire in to what you hope will reach those goals. But you have to be very clear to yourself and honest with yourself and honest with your team about when you have the right people to meet those goals and when you don't. And it's always a balance. My style is to give people the opportunity to succeed and give them the resources to succeed. Basically develop a partnership with that individual to see if this works on both ends, right? And in some cases, as I mentioned, with our former sales lead, who I'm still close friends with, it was a really great partnership while he was here and a great partnership afterward. And we came to that conclusion together about the change in strategy, the market dynamics, and whether it was good or bad to continue down the path we're going. One of the hard things is when, you know, you can't always expect that level of maturity in people. It depends on their experience, it depends on where they came from, their previous work history. And that can become very challenging sometimes, like dealing with that much change, especially if it's not handled very cleanly or very professionally. I think that's the hardest part about growth because in growth, there will be change, the definition. And then finding people who are all aligned with that and all comfortable with that, I think is key, which is why one of the things we like to see in a resume is prior startup experience because everyone's kind of been through that and has their stripes. People who have been at big companies only, they're not used to that level of disruption or change or reorganization. And it can be very jarring and the reactions can be sometimes negative, but they can be great and sometimes as well, as I mentioned. So the learning there, I think it's important to determine and set a framework and be honest with yourself when something's not working and make a decision around making a change there for the best interest of the rest of the team and the rest of the company. And I would qualify that as less of a learning, but more maybe a, a reflection because we have been doing that. It's hard to go through that. I call it kind of micro changes instead of the macro ones you read about in the news. But if you don't make those small changes frequently, you end up with headlines and massive rift and heading in the wrong direction or complete strategic reorganization. And that's not healthy for a business. It's very painful to go through. So um, I prefer the small pivots instead of the massive like resets. So I think that's been difficult to handle culturally. I think uh, the team sometimes gets a little nervous, but we always talk them through that. Like, hey, here's the rationale why we're doing. The other thing is our success is we are very transparent with what is going on about all of our finances we share with the entire team, which is very unusual. 
runway finances deals, et cetera, just to give people and also education about what this stuff means, just to give people the chance to know what is going on and to treat them like adults. I hear too many stories of friends, colleagues, et cetera, walking into work one day and their key card doesn't work, right? It's just a unilateral decision made by management and there's some massive financial you know, malfeasance or something happening underneath and no one was talking about it or they're out of cash and no one told anyone. And then you walk in and it's like, what's going on? That's the last thing I ever want to do to the business. So I've always been really transparent. And sometimes that freaks people out because it's TMI, but most of the time people appreciate it because they know where things are going. Other learnings, to your point, delegating to really trusted lieutenants is probably the number one priority for anyone in a management position in the entire company. I'm very happy with the leadership team I have in place taking on a lot of those functions now. I think the next challenge is going one layer down, making sure that my reports are equally comfortable with the team they put in place. And I always use the analogy of hiring people that can do what you do. And it's absolutely what you should do if you want to scale the organization and scale yourself. It's hard to find those people. It's a challenging hiring environment for most of the 10-year slingshot, but we have found some real gems. So I'm really happy about that. Absolutely. It's crazy. Throughout our conversation, there are so many times with our parallels that I thought I was weird for doing because we also share quarterly financials internally. I've always found that kind of transparency is important because at the end of the day, everyone's on your team. We're all rowing the same boat. When we win, we win. When we lose, we lose. So you ought to know what the heck is going on. So that rings true for me. I love hearing that. So looking forward in a year's time, two years time, what's in store for Slingshot? And can you give us a little sneak peek? The thing I'm most excited about now is that our products are being integrated into on-market therapeutics like today. And that is not something I thought I would say for a long time. When we started working in regulated markets or with regulated clients, like pharma clients and so forth, I always thought that we would need to engage them during preclinical development, wait until some sort of approval, and then our control products would be part of some process. It turns out that there's such a dire need and a just a total lack of third-party controls that they're unregulated right now. The FDA wants to find sources of controls, but there's no regulation. So these companies just DIY themselves. They make their own cell lines and blend them together and do all this labor. So that's been really, really satisfying. So I think we want to see that happen in every on-market CAR-T and CAR-NK therapeutic that's out there. We want to help those companies increase manufacturing capacity. We want to help them expand internationally fast. So I want that to happen in the next 12 months, and I think we can get there. We have some touch points into all the customers, but we want to have deep engagements and be directly touching the on-market therapies, which would be great. I think after that, just continue to expand applications. So we have identified new applications in vaccine manufacturing. We want to help there on various multivalent food programs or oncology programs. We also have some touch points into additional rare diseases. We want to see that expanding. So largely expanding alongside the verticals that we have, which are very high level solid tumor, liquid tumor, rare disease, and then vaccine. The other thing that we have going on, which I haven't talked about at all, and we don't publicize is we are actually functionalizing the cells themselves into a therapeutic modality. So we're trying internally to use the synthetic cells as the drug instead of helping to manufacture a cell-based drug. And that work is very exciting and it's actually going exceptionally fast. So I would love in the next year for us to get additional data to see what we might want to do with that. We might spin on a separate drug company, for example. But there's a lot of really fun innovations in material science that we are applying to solve that problem. And we think that we can create a product that is far more scalable in terms of manufacturing than an autologous cell therapy, for example. Very cool. 
that's exciting. I'm super pumped for you guys. That's incredible. I think that's a very exciting place to kind of wrap things up. But are there any additional shout outs you'd like to give to anyone who's supported you along the way? Absolutely. I think the list would be endless. In fact, there's a lot of people who have taken bets on me when they shouldn't have. It's some comment that you made before. Obviously, my family, again, the, the formative experiences I've had as a kid, just the DIY experiences of doing everything ourselves and at least learning the process. That includes my parents, my sisters, uh, two older sisters. They were really, really formative in helping me do that. And then throughout my education, I would say the undergraduate education and exposure to research and laboratory work was also very formative. The summer internships that I picked up at Woods Hole to do comp bio, and that's where I was reaching out to the UCSF professors. And everyone in that ecosystem, Brian Showkid, Andre Shali, again, zero reason to write back to me whatsoever, but to some random kid who was in high school effectively. Yeah, but they were really helpful in that journey. And then when I was an RA touring Kapoor at Rockefeller, by far the most influential technical person in my life, he, he really put a ton of trust in me to drive research that I never, ever would have had exposure to. And it really ignited my passion for doing this, right? The other experiences, I would say, obviously, my co-founders today and the past, very formative business partners, friends, colleagues. And as you know, you end up spending sometimes more time with them than family in aggregate. So you get to know them very closely and you go through ups and downs together, but you get to know those people really well as a result and they'll be forever part of you going forward or part of me. And then, as I mentioned before and hinted at, even the challenging experiences, I'm not sure if I would thank the individuals directly because the experiences were challenging, but the overall experience was extremely informative in terms of learning what you don't want to do as a manager, you don't want to do as XYZ. I think that has been really important for guiding the way I operate and the way I strive to operate in the future and the ecosystem as well. There's been a lot of investment, not from an individual necessarily, but from cities, states, institutions, et cetera, in helping innovation and entrepreneurship. The Bay Area has been fantastic from that regard. Everyone asks why things start here. It's because of that ecosystem. It's not because all the money is here. It's because there's a quorum of other founders going through the same thing. There are ancillary support resources for equipment, CapEx, infrastructure, legal advice. All of this is just all congealed and concentrated around here. So it's a really good environment. So I definitely thank the fact that I'm here. And then, yeah, the first exposure to industry was by way of Chris Patton, who was one of the first scientists at Amherst. And he took a flyer on me as well and had me out there for the internship. And that was a life-changing experience. And then the number one person is definitely my wife. I went for a very long time with zero salary. Not a euphemism, like literally zero dollars in salary. She never blinked an eye or skipped a beat on that. She always had faith that I'd be able to turn the businesses into something that could help the world. And wouldn't have survived literally without the without her support for all these years. Well, I mean, I got to give shout out to my wife, Chloe, as well. It was the same exact experience and I couldn't be more grateful. I honestly don't know a better place to kind of wrap things up. Jeff, thank you so much for your time. This has been an incredibly fun and insightful conversation. And there's so many lessons and just valuable insights that I think all our listeners are going to really resonate with. So appreciate you taking the time to come on the podcast. And the next time I'm in the East Bay, I'm not too far. I'll give you a shout and maybe we could chat some more over a beer or dinner and kind of have one of those eureka moments. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Jeff, thanks again. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. That's all for this episode of the Biotech Startups Podcast. We hope you enjoyed our three-part series with Jeff Kim. Be sure to tune into our next series where we chat with Martin Brenner, CEO and CSO at iBio. 
iBio uses their AI-guided discovery platform to tackle complex and challenging drug targets and develop safer and more effective immunotherapies for difficult-to-treat cancers. Martin has an extensive background in the life sciences and has worked for some of the largest names in the business, including Eli Lilly, Pfizer, AstraZeneca, and Merck. His deep insights into the biotech space offer much for founders to learn from. The Biotech Startups Podcast is produced by Exceda. Don't want to miss an episode? Search for the Biotech Startups Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and click subscribe. Exceda provides research labs with equipment leases on founder-friendly terms to support paths to exceptional outcomes. To learn more, visit our website, www.exedr.com. On behalf of the team here at Exceda, thanks for listening. The Biotech Startups podcast provides general insights into the life science sector through the experiences of its guests. The use of information on this podcast or materials linked from the podcast is at the user's own risk. The views expressed by the participants are their own and are not the views of Exceda or sponsors. No reference to any product, service or company in the podcast is an endorsement by Exceda or its guests.